0: Well, we come tonight to Ruth chapter number three, and in coming to Ruth chapter three, we're more than halfway through the book, or certainly at the halfway point, but I remind you that what we're doing with the book of Ruth is maybe slightly different than what you might expect, and as I've said before, absolutely nothing wrong with doing the conventional thing and examining Ruth in the book, and it certainly isn't that we're not paying attention to Ruth in the book, but our focus is really on Naomi, and our study of one is of Naomi in the sense of a study of bitterness. So in chapter 1, bad things about bitterness. In chapter 2, recovering from bitterness. And tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about when bitterness is gone. One thing is for sure, even when you read this chapter in kind of a casual way, I think you can't help but notice that the Naomi of Ruth chapter 3 is a totally different person from the Naomi of Ruth chapter 1. It's almost like they're two different people. She gives every evidence, in fact, of having made a full recovery, and she gives every evidence of being her old self again. In fact, in a colloquial kind of a way, I might put it to you this way tonight, she's back in the saddle. I sort of like illustrations like that because, especially as I think back to my teenage years, I did a fair amount with horses, so I want to carry that illustration forward a little bit so that we can kind of get the stage set for where we are and what I've tried to say so far about Ruth and what I'm really going to try to be saying tonight, back in the saddle. Well, almost when you think about chapter 1 and those hammer blows that fell upon Naomi and then those bitter heart cries, you think of someone who's been thrown. That's well, not a very pleasant experience. I don't know how many here tonight who have had it, but it's not a very pleasant experience. But I can assure you some are far worse than others. Some you get up from with just a few bruises and you kind of dust yourself off and everything is pretty much copacetic and you kind of shake yourself and think, okay, I'm glad that's over with. But others, not quite so much. Sometimes you have more than bruises. Sometimes you might even have a broken limb. Sometimes you have a more serious injury. Well, that sack ladder description is really where Naomi is in this. She doesn't get up from this with just a few cuts, bruises, and scrapes, dusting herself off and going on about life as normal. No, she has some serious repercussions of this. And so this is Ruth chapter 1, and Naomi is thrown. But Ruth chapter 2 is kind of like this, because that chapter begins and it's it's quite clear that, that Naomi is kind of gripped with this what I described as a the paralysis of bitterness and it's almost as if you get up and you look around and, and you and you think to yourself, oh, because now the horse has run off. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you're fortunate, sometimes the horse just stands right there kind of looking at you like what's your problem? But other times the horse runs off and that's kind of the case here because now you realize it's almost like insult to injury. Now you realize you've got a long walk home from wherever you might, you might happen to be. And this is sort of Naomi. It's almost like at the, at the outset of that chapter, it's like insult has been added to injury and and she realizes now that she's got this journey. And the journey that we describe starts out with that lingering despair, but thank God we come to the place where we see the surprise. And then we see the reawakened hope that comes into her heart and life through the powerful truth of what I've called, in her case, forgotten providence. Now, on a more theological level, what's really going on in this chapter is we get an opportunity to see the transforming power of God's truth, what I've described here as forgotten providence on Naomi's part. But I'm going to deal with this not only by reminding you of that level of truth, and I'll talk about it a little bit more in the message tonight, but... I want us to look at it in a very practical sense tonight. What's it really look like when bitterness is gone? That's tonight's message, when bitterness is gone. What's that really look like? And I'm not here tonight to try to offer you something that I can tell you unequivocally is a, is a complete, absolute description because, no, we're looking at the story of Naomi. But I do think if you look at this, I think you will be able to tell that you have here a pretty interesting and a pretty accurate and a very complete, really, description of what that looks like for, in a practical sense. When bitterness is gone and there are four things that I want us to look at tonight and the first one is depression lifts depression lifts now you sort of notice there that I didn't necessarily pin this down to any one particular verse you see I have the designation there chapter 3 verse 1 and following which is what those two F's mean following verses And the reason that I've put it that way is because there really isn't one particular verse that you're going to look at and draw this conclusion that depression has lifted. No, really it's more the overall impression that you get from the dialogue that takes place in this chapter and more specifically what happens when Naomi is talking. Please try to remember that that's been really instrumental into our insights of Naomi and her situation because it was by examining what Naomi had to say, those heart cries that came after the hammer blows in chapter number one, that we're able to to detect this bitterness, this anger, and this fault-finding with God. But the same thing is true in chapter three. It's by listening to what she says that you get the distinct impression, and you're deeply impressed with the fact that, okay, the Naomi here is not the Naomi we were we were We were dwelling on in in chapter number one, so in the beginning though of chapter number two, it's like Naomi is still gripped with this despair she's still uh locked in this paralysis of bitterness that it's created in her life and but when you start reading this dialogue and you start looking at these particular verses it's it's clear enough that things are very much different now, so I ask you what's happened how in the world does this transformation take place and I think what you have again is, well, we could give this explanation on the human level. I think, first of all, some time has passed, but the time has been used by God in order for this truth to continue to permeate her soul. Think about what happens every morning for a lot of people when you turn on the coffee maker. You know, you've, you've got some coffee you've put in there maybe the night before, and maybe you've loaded the machine with water as well if you do it that way, or if you're going the K-cup route, you still have the same basic process that takes place. And you turn that thing on, well, you don't have coffee just the moment you turn that thing on because what happens is you've got to have enough time for that water to percolate through those coffee grounds and it's going to bring forth from those from that coffee the flavor that you're looking for in that early morning cup of coffee. Well, in this particular case, I think the same thing is true. Some time has passed. And why do I say this? Well, if you go back for a moment just to the very last verse of chapter 2, notice what it says. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So this is kind of interesting because thinking about what takes place in Israel, you have the barley harvest that begins towards the latter part of March and continues through April. Now it mentions that she continued gleaning in the field through the wheat harvest as well. So that starts in June and continues through July. So it's very possible that what you have here is the passage of some several months after the experiences that are taking place that have been recorded in Ruth chapter 2. Um, there is an interesting note that we might put this with as well, because if you look at chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So it's a past tense there, as if the harvests have now come to an end. I wouldn't want to build my entire case on that, but it is an interesting correlation with what I've been pointing out here about the time that may very well have elapsed that has given God's truth an opportunity to percolate through her soul for her to have really been impressed and changed and transformed and blessed so that joy and peace has returned to her life. Folks, I think this is really a great opportunity to pause, even if just for a moment, for us to be reminded about the power of God's word. I think we often take this for granted. But yet God's word is living and powerful, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 12, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So God's word is living and powerful. And we see illustrations of it all the time, and sometimes it's almost as if people out in the world, at least by their actions, have a greater, a greater sense of that than we do. And I'm reminded of a a story that was told in a Daily Bread devotional. Dennis DeHaan was actually the author of this, and he was recounting a a Sunday evening service at a church where a a woman who had been on a a short-term missions trip was recounting some of her experiences. And one of them was that she was recounting a bit of the nervousness uh, that they had when they got to the border because they were entering into a communist country. And what she said was, the question that the guard asked them was this, do you have any guns, drugs, or Bibles? Well, it's pretty apparent that guns have a lot of power over people and in general. It's pretty apparent that drugs do too, but for a communist guard who really probably doesn't know anything at all about the Bible to make that statement, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that they understand something at least in in watching the transformative power of God's word in the hearts and lives of people because God's truth makes us free. And of all things, tyrannical states, fear, freedom. So God's word is living and powerful. And this is a great opportunity for us to understand how God has so marvelously worked and what it is that's been instrumental in helping for Naomi to cast off this crippling depression with which she has been gripped. Well, let's look at the second thing because once again, Our question from a practical standpoint, what's this look like when bitterness is gone? Number one, depression lifts. Number two, self-focus recedes. Well, you remember that self-focus is one of the bad things that we saw in that message in chapter one, bad things about bitterness. And all you have to do, and we'll take just a moment if you don't mind to do this, to flip the page back to Naomi chapter 1, and look at those bitter heart cries once again, because in every single one of them, I think I pointed this out when we were here, every single one of them you find the word me. So let's look back, chapter 1, verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me." We drop down to verse number 20. Here's the second of these heart cries. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. There it is again. And then in the second one, verse 21, the third one actually, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So what do you have? You have someone here who's, and and I I say this as gently as I know how, but you have someone who is totally self-absorbed. And it, it gives some testimony to the difficulty of these problems in our lives, but also the peril of finding ourselves in that kind of a situation and allowing ourselves to dwell there because it's a dangerous place to be in. Well, that's all gone now because her thoughts are for Ruth. She's thinking about Ruth. She's thinking about Ruth's future. She's thinking about Ruth's welfare, and so if self-focus is one of the bad things about bitterness, well, when bitterness passes, we experience a renewed concern for others, and not only a, a renewed concern for others, but a re-involvement in spiritual activity. Folks, I hope these aren't just words to you tonight. This is a this is a wonderful truth, and if 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 you've had these experiences before you can look back on them and you can see this and if you're if if for whatever reason you're you're listening to this message tonight and this is a problem going on in your life right now the other side of it is looking what this has done to me and i don't know if i look in the mirror i like the old me or the me now it used to be that i was a different person before i got into this trough of bitterness and anger against god but that's the way It does to us. It creates this self-focus in our lives. And yet here you you now have a totally different scenario where in in this verse she reaches out to her daughter-in-law and says, should I not seek rest for you? It's not me anymore, it's you. And then she continues that it may be well with you. And you have a totally different focus in her life. What a positive thing this is because the other is... A real problem. I kind of tickled at something D.L. Moody said that fits, I think, very well here. He said, a great many people seem to embalm their troubles. He said, I always feel like running away when I see them coming. They bring out the old mummy and say in a sad voice, you don't know the troubles I have. And that isn't to make light of it, but it is to shine a light on what this does to us when we're gripped with this self-focus and this self absorption it's, it's a it's a very unhealthy thing from a spiritual capac- from a spiritual con- uh, consideration let's look at the third thing tonight spiritual energy returns so in verses 1 through 5 and then again in verse 18 what do we see well thinking back about the past and thinking about what this was like before if you can read that okay i asked pastor andrew about that and he said well i have young eyes so i don't know if you have young eyes i hope you can read that if you have eyes that are young i hope you can read that too but before she is paralyzed the bitterness it's a it's a it's a binding thing it's it's like it, it locks us into the prison house of our own troubles it's like being in a world of blindness because in that world of blindness you can neither see anybody else's problems nor any of the blessings in your own life any longer but now, as I say, it's a totally different ball game that's going on now. Now it's as if the total opposite of this is complete. This I mentioned this curious role reversal that took place in chapter two where Naomi by all rights should have been the leader. She should have been the one to encourage Ruth, and no, because she was gripped with this bitterness, it, it wasn't that way in her life, it was all it's Ruth who proposes going out and gleaning in the fields. Well that's a different ball game of what's going on now because look at this Naomi. It's a complete opposite of what you see. What do you see? Well, now you see Naomi taking the initiative. This is what I'd like to impress upon you as spiritual leadership. See, look at what you forfeit. Look at what's not true of your life when bitterness is there as well as what is true of your life when bitterness is gone. It's like you feel like getting back involved. As I've said, back in the saddle. And being involved with things, and being involved in the lives of people, and being involved in the work of the Lord, and being involved in your local church. But Naomi takes the initiative here. You know, back in chapter 2, verse 2, it was Ruth. It was Ruth who made the proposal. Why don't I go and glean in the fields? But Look at this in verse 2. Who's talking now? Who's taking initiative now? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? And so it's Naomi Not only do we see spiritual leadership, but we see spiritual insight. Now, do you remember something that Naomi said back in chapter 2, verse 2? I'm going to read that verse again. But Ruth said at the end of the verse, here's a detail I took a little time to, to talk about last time, but I want to bring it out in this context again tonight. She said, "'Let me go to the field and glean ears, the ears, "'after him in whose sight I shall find favor.'" After him in whose sight I shall find favor. And I, I pointed out to you that the word favor there is actually the word for grace. And so it's it's almost as if what Ruth is thinking to herself, you know, it's there's got to be someone somewhere who will show grace to us. Well, this is an insight that Ruth has. This is an inspiration that Ruth has. Now it's Naomi who has who sees the possibilities. Look at what she says at the end of the verse. She said to her, go my daughter, but uh, she says, what well, would help if I turn the page back to chapter 3, is not Boaz our relative with whom, with whose women you were? But now it's as if she realizes, hey, he's more than a relative. He's a redeemer. And it's like she's, she's suddenly attuned, suddenly alert, suddenly aware of, of what these possibilities are. Here's something else that that forms this description. That Naomi has now has spiritual excitement. Now I mentioned to you something last week, and I'll I'll just mention to you again. I really I don't see how you can read this story in Ruth chapter three and not and not see this once again and be impressed that the writer here, whoever the writer is, is is a consummate storyteller. But it's kind of a shame really when you look at just how knowledgeable Naomi really is. And to see Naomi all beat down and just not in a position to to be used and for all the qualities that she has for all the insights that she has, but I mean she seems to really know exactly how to tell Ruth what to do now. This is I don't know how you come up with a better touch than this. She says in verse 3, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known until after he's had supper. i say that's pretty sound advice on all points if you're trying to make the right approach to a man. Then, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet. Well, have you ever read that and kind of thought to yourself, Really? What's that all about? You stop and think about it for a moment. Somebody comes and does that to you when you're sound asleep. It may take a while, but before long, before too much time passes, what's going to happen? You're going to wake up because there's no one happier camper than somebody with cold feet. I, take it for me. As somebody that spent lots of hours on deer stands in the early morning and on into the evening, I can tell you something about getting cold feet. and It's not the kind some people get at the altar. And you learn pretty quickly, I either have to figure out a way to solve that problem or else this is just not going to work. I'm not going to be happy spending all this time in misery. So she she knows all of these things. She's got all of these insights. But now, where I'm really trying to head is, the. I wanted, to, wanted you just to see a few of those details. I'm sure you picked them up as we read through this. But I just love this verse 16. I mean, you talk about excitement. I talked about the fact that Naomi was self-absorbed and Naomi was really not thinking about anybody but herself, but I pointed out that detail to you in chapter 2 where it's like finally as that day wore on when she told Ruth, okay, you go ahead out there and it's fine. You glean. You go to somebody's field and if, if that's what you want to do, fine. And it's, But it's like as the day wears on, she does begin to think to herself, I hope everything's okay. And it's like she's looking when Ruth comes back, she sees immediately that Ruth has this gift of grain that Boaz has given her. She, she can't possibly have gleaned 30 pounds worth in one day. She knows something has happened. And, and, and so I don't know that I would call that excitement so much as just maybe a little bit of, of her thinking about someone else besides herself, if only for a moment. But this is real excitement here now when you get to verse number 16. Have a look at this. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Well, that's, that's what the ESV does with this expression. And the reason that you've got to try to do something with this expression is because the literal for it probably doesn't do much for us in English. I mean, it's like in the King James Version, which kind of gives the more literal sense. It's, Who art thou, my daughter? Well, it's, obviously we don't, it's obvious we, we don't talk that way. She knows who it is. She's looking right at her. But you have to do something to try to capture the, the, the sense of what this really is in English. And so the ESV says, how did you fare, my daughter? Well, you can get a little excitement out of that, but I like the way the NIV renders it. How did it go? I mean, can't you just see that? you got to get into these Bible stories because they'll mean a lot more to you when you do as long as you do that accurately. And that's it's like she just can't wait to see what's going to be the outcome of this thing. Well, one more thing before we leave this and look at the last thing for just a brief moment. Now she has the faith both to act and to wait. Look what she tells the acting we've already seen. But look at what she tells her at the end here. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. Talk about knowing something. She says, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today but I still have to tell you, even though she knew Boaz would settle the matter that day, it takes faith to act, and it takes sometimes even more faith to wait. But it's here. I'm telling you, this is a different Naomi than what we saw at the start of this. And there's one more thing that we'll take a moment for tonight. What's it look like when bitterness is gone? Well, God returns us to that place of blessing. Blessings increase. Boaz says to her, you can't go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed, so bring your cloak over here. She brings her cloak over. Now, look what this says. And and Ruth comes back. It says that he measured out for her. This is verse uh, 15, I guess. Um, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. She held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. This one really just kind of amazes me because you look this up and the word that's translated measure here is the sia. And if you work all this out, the sia is about a half a bushel. So I told you before what she brought home was about that from that day of gleaning was three-fifths of a bushel and it equated to about 30 pounds. So if you've got six... Halves, you've got three. Anyway, however you work this out, it's double what she brought home before. She's toting, that's that's just a southern term. She's toting 60 pounds. But I like what Boaz says. You can't go home empty to your mother-in-law. Where did he get that? It's almost like he takes out of Naomi's mouth what she said in that last bitter heart cry that we read about in chapter 1, verse 21. I went out full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So I have a question for you. Do you think he heard that? Well, when we back up to the earlier part of that story in chapter number 1, it says, So they came... To Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, chapter 1, verse 19, the whole town was stirred because of them. Hmm. Can't prove anything. It's kind of interesting to wonder, though, if Boaz might have been there that day, might have heard those words. Whether he heard those words or not, what he said was something that God wanted him to say. You can't go home empty. Because God's in the business of demonstrating just how untrue that is and how greatly he desires to bless us. You probably heard the story about this told in different ways, but really quickly I want to recite it for, or not recite it, but tell it for you tonight because it kind of helps I think to make a point about what we're seeing here and it's the story of a man that was shipwrecked and He washed up on a small island. It was uninhabited. No, his name wasn't Gilligan. (laughs) But he was by himself, and um, he had really just whatever the clothes were on his back, hardly anything. And every day it was like he cried out to God, send someone, send someone to rescue me, send someone to rescue me. And just day after day, it was as if the heavens were brass. No one heard anything. And he didn't see anything. And he finally just kind of gave up on all of that. And he figured he's there for the duration. And he built a little hut. Put what little few things he had gathered around and in that hut. And that was really all he had. One day he went out away from that. The island wasn't that big, but he was out in search of food. And he started to make his way back in the worst, the absolute worst that you could possibly imagine happened to him. And that is he saw smoke. He hurried back, and sure enough, this little hut that he had built and what few little things he'd been able to gather was in flames, and it burned up. And it was just like you talk about insult to injury. He just sat down, and it was a bitter, bitter pill. The next morning, he woke up, and there was a ship standing offshore and a small boat rowing in. They rescued that man. He asked the crew, How did you know I was here? They said, We saw your smoke signal. Folks, I'm simply trying to make the point. You know, it's rather interesting sometimes how our present difficulties in the hand of God are often instrumental to our future happiness. And so, you and I, in our human nature, we kick against the pricks, we fight against the trials, we resist. Because it's hard, and that's all natural, I guess, to the way human nature is, but sometimes that's really the key. It's as if God takes us to that place because He knows we have to pass through that for Him to give us the blessings that He wants to entrust to us next. In chapter 2, I asked you to go with me on that journey so that we could rejoice with Naomi as we observe the power of God's providence working in her life. But the flip side of this is this, if you also go with me on the what we see in chapter also go with Naomi and what we see in chapter 3, we can see what bitterness costs us. Just think about this as we close tonight. Gloomy days of depression, self-pity, loss of spiritual vitality and the blessings that God really wants to give us. And I hope I can encourage you tonight. Bitterness is deadly. If for whatever reason God speaks to your heart and you sense that this is something that's bothering you, then it is my prayer that you and I will make short accounts of that and deal with that in order that we might experience what it's like when bitterness is gone.